there's two fish in a tank. One of them turns to the other and says, do you know how to drive this thing? <laughs> That's funny. Fish. Mine is a fish joke too, that yeah. my grandfather told me when I was pretty young. Was, the fish swims into a concrete wall. He says, damn. That's awesome. That's awesome. My daughter told me one the other day, she said, you know, Apple was going to make electric cars, but they have no windows. Precocious. Welcome to the podcast, Maggie. Mm -hmm. Why don't you do an introduction of yourself and then we'll dive uh, into something interesting. Sure. <clears throat> Conference voice. Uh, my name is Maggie McAlpine. I'm the cyber engagement lead at MITRE Ingenuity uh, for the Center for Threat and Form Defense. Uh, before that, I was Sam Curry's chief of staff slash security strategist at Cyber Reason. Uh, before that- She did all the real work. She did. Um, I, I did all the conference talks that Sam was too busy to do. His days were already 18 hours and we were just just desperately trying to get them down to a 16, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just to be fair to him. Uh, and then uh, and then before that, I was at a bunch of startups, uh, including my own consultancy, and we did a lot of election security work for consulting or pro bono as well over the years. And uh, yeah, and uh, before that is college, where I was an English major, which naturally leads into all of this. Who happened to speak Italian, as I recall. Happened to speak Italian, yes. I, I lived overseas uh, for a few years and, uh, it was utter, utter hell. And, uh, out of that hell, I learned basically like the most broken Italian you've ever heard. Um, but I can get around still. <laughs> so. That's all that matters, right? That's, yeah. uh, so, so do you still have a passion for election security? Is that still a deep and abiding thing or is it something you're going to return to? Uh, you know, I always feel the need, this is a ner nerdy enough podcast that I can quote this. Like I will always be interested in election security because, to quote Rocket Raccoon from Guardians of the Galaxy, but like, why would you save the world? I'm one of the idiots who lives here. Actually, Star-Lord says that to him. But uh, yeah, I'm one of the idiots who lives in this country. So yes, I would like to continue to see our elections be safe, secure, uh, free and fair. Um, but uh, I am not as up to date. So generally speaking these days, if somebody asks me, I kind of come on. I'm willing to do like a level set. I'm willing to kind of say like what the state of the... It's a very slow moving industry. Uh, so I, uh, the one thing I kind of pull back from is saying like, what's being done these days? I don't want to disparage it when hard work is going on or, or say hard work's happening if it has stalled for some reason, but I can kind of tell people like, what was the situation at least up until 2020? But it's, you know, I, I feel that way about a lot of things. I think there's a temptation to, um, to call yourself an expert and, and there comes a point and it's hard to know when it's past when you no longer are. And two really weird things happen you find yourself in a room and you realize you still have a depth that is applicable and yet uh, maybe, maybe imposter syndrome steps in or something. You, you feel like you're not on the cutting edge anymore. It, you can get back into it pretty quickly, but there's like an, a best before or rather there's a date after which you feel like your cutting edgeness has expired. Um, and I'm very careful about that because certainly when you're, when you're chief information security officer, you got to remember you're not supposed to be the best security person in the room anymore, right? Mm -hmm. The people under you are supposed to be. Did you feel that way too, Maggie? Uh, certainly with election security, um, 
2020 was such a like sort of a grenade thrown into that world. Um, and a lot has changed as a result of the highest office in the land getting involved in um, election integrity, shall we say, uh, in various ways. Um, so Alleged various ways. In various ways. Uh, <clears throat> so there's been, there's, there's always lawsuits. Um, there's like everything in the United States, everything's you know, built on precedent. So there could be precedents that have changed. Um, a lot of vendors who were hostile to things like the voting village were starting to come around. Uh, right towards the end of 2020 to like wanting to work with independent researchers rather than spurning them or suing them. Uh, so uh, a lot of states, you know, there's a lot of fur around election security these days. So states could be channeling that money towards things that actually help uh, or mm. they could be channeling it towards, you know, posturing uh, and things that uh, uh, disenfranchise voters uh, on the assumption that voter fraud, which is statistically negligible to the point of non-existent uh you know, gets tackled instead, right? Like that would be, so that would be one way I would be like, I don't want to say like, oh, it's so slow moving. Like nobody's got an IT guy in uh, voting security, you know, in, in any, in these small states, these small municipalities, uh, but only to find out like, actually the, the situation tilted since then. Now everybody's got one, you know, or most have got one except for a few remote areas. So like, I, I, and I, and again, you just don't want to disparage the work that might be going on behind your back. Like there could have been a huge inrush of things I just don't know about. And I don't want to be like, oh, it's never going to happen. These things are so slow. These are initiatives that weren't going anywhere and to find out like they were going somewhere and they're, they're clipping along. So you mentioned uh, yeah. the, the voting village. Yeah. I assume most people aren't familiar with yes. that. And for those that listen that haven't gone to conferences might not even be familiar with the idea of villages in general. Yeah. So villages, um, at least in my uh, deepest experience, are like uh, small, almost conferences within a conference. DEF CON, uh, the largest hacker conference, I believe, uh, at least in the United States, uh, has them. And they'll have like hardware hacking or biohacking or uh, you can basically kind of bring your topic of choice there. You can actually establish your own village, um, though there's a little bit of a barrier to entry. You know, so it can't be frivolous. Um but the voting village was designed specifically to uh, address voting machine uh, concerns, uh, which had been raised around 2005 um, by a group, uh, including Ron Rivest of RSA and, um, you know, uh, various luminaries and cybersecurity uh, people who were really uh, concerned because of, you know, the influx of digital voting machines uh brought on by the Help America Vote Act in 2002. So anyway, they realized all these things are electronic now and they went, well, these things should might be hackable. So they began to work on this problem and found some very disturbing things, which are all outlined in a, in a HBO documentary called Hacking Democracy. Um, that crew went on, including uh, the hacker in that, who is Hart Hursty, who is my former business partner, um, to uh, continue to address these concerns. And one of the things that came out of that in 2017 was the voting machine hacking village where uh, finally... Uh, Keep in mind, DMCA regulations were used to prevent voting machine uh, research by independent experts. Uh, they were black box. They were considered protected. That lifted, thanks to a lot of campaigning by some really smart, amazing people like Matt Blaze uh, of Georgetown Law. Uh, and so finally, we could do this thing. And uh, we could we could hold, host these voting machine hacking events. And that was the purpose of this village, this conference within a conference at DEF CON, uh, which drew a lot of attention and was a really, really great effort and, and kind of moved the needle forward on independent research and security research being done by voting machine vendors uh, in the United States. It's crazy how long it took to get laws in place that were logical. Like, saying no doesn't stop a hacker. 
And for the longest time, that was the, instead of having policies on how we address the technical issues or policies, how we address procedural issues, like we wrote a law that says you can't do it. We've solved the problem. Stop. Computer fraud. And stop again. Yeah. Right. Right. Do you think that's actually changed or do you, you seem to think it has changed, but there's, um, I think the public opinion has changed enough now, uh, that the, that look, I, let me be clear. Any company probably would like to stay out of the press for their product not working. And elections uh, companies, election uh, product creators, uh, you know, vendors have some, I will lend them this. Elections are a very unique threat space because the appearance of an attack can be as damaging as an actual attack. You can't say that about like everything. Um, you can't say that if I, you know, say I hacked your pacemaker, you're as in danger as if I actually hacked it. Like it's pretty black or white. Did you hack it or not? Is it going to kill me um, or let me die? Um, with a voting machine, it's such a trust-based world. So I don't entirely blame them for being careful with, you know, wild claims, with um, not wanting to let just any guy off the street, you know, just hack their voting machines and say, I found this vulnerability. As you know, not all vulnerabilities are going to be exploited. In fact, most vulnerabilities we find have not been exploited as far as we know, uh, or if they do, they're not critical or they'll be caught in some other way. Um, and, and that can be lost in the headlines and election space in particular is incredibly vulnerable to that and can disenfranchise voters by creating the appearance of an attack. So on the other hand, though, they didn't have to sue like students and, you know, professors and doctors, and researchers, you know, doctors of technology. And so, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, there was a there was a lot of antipathy, a lot of animosity between voting machine vendors and scholars, you know, and, and hackers and, and computer scientists at one point, which came from uh, an excessive zeal, I would say, in trying to protect uh, that and, and, and again, try to keep themselves out of the headlines with anything that could be damaging. And it's like, sorry, this is actually bigger than you. We actually do need to address and, and we don't trust that you're actually doing the work to keep these things safe on the level they need to be safe for the threats that we're facing. Um, you're not, you know the DOD, you're, you're, uh, some of these, some of these vendors are so much smaller than you even realize. Like it's terrifying how small some of them are. They don't have the place, you know, we, there wasn't necessarily, uh, the need or the motivation or the, even the money in some cases for them to have the security that they needed. So that was kind of like what some of this pressure was meant to do is be like, now nah, you actually got to do this, even if it is uncomfortable or difficult or expensive. So now Maggie, you and I, I think the first time we interacted professionally was actually during a tabletop of, uh, of an election hacking event. Um, because what we had done, we were putting, I think it was the seventh one and it was during quarantine, if I'm not mistaken. It's 2020. And we were mixing tabletop sort of gaming out with a red team, blue team around an election event. Um, and I was part of the control, the team organizing it. It was me and a guy named Bill Keeler. And I think you were on the red team. Yes. I was on the yeah. red team with Jonathan. Uh, was my brother on that team too? I think he it? might've been on the blue team. Blue team. Yeah, that's yeah. possible. That doesn't that's seem possible. right. Maybe. You can't put red on the blue. His name's red. Uh, his name's red. On the red team, but, uh, oh, no, Sorry, it gets worse than that. Sorry, Sam. What's his full name? Red we, we've curry. Done, yeah, we've we've done it once or twice. Oh, sorry. Podcast, <laughs> yeah. No, it's all it's all right. Get reservations know. at some restaurants and stuff, and we're gonna have to have him on here too at some yeah. point. But but back to yes. you. So, so yeah. you, how did you how did you get involved in that? I never, I don't think I ever understood how you found <laughs> us or we found you. 
I hacked my way in. That's how, that was yeah, the challenge, wasn't here. it? No, um, no. Uh, actually, I had done with Highwire PR. I had done a panel which included people uh, like Baccio of Splunk, who was at the you know time the CSO of the Buddha Judge campaign, uh, and uh, Michael Daniel of the yeah. Cyber Threat Alliance, and uh, I had just somehow ended up in their little like kind of roster. We're all sort of in the same circle anyway with Ari Schwartz and everybody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then. Um, I guess one of, they were just like looking for people for these things. Election security was topical because it was 2020, the fall, you know, and, uh, and I said, sure. I was really worried about how that would be doing it over zoom for the first time. Yeah. Um, I remember I was sitting on my back deck thinking this is so surreal that I've got like 30 people in a simulation. Ed Davis was in it and who was the former police commissioner for Boston and uh, during the Boston marathon bombing actually, and a bunch of others. And I remember you were there and you were part of a team and, did the team come together well, even though it was over Zoom, or did it not? You can say I that. thought so. I thought I, I actually my my little smile was because I thought the red team did very well, but we were declared the losers for reasons that still like left a scar in my soul. About it with me I'm still mad thing. about it because <laughs> I thought we actually won. <laughs> I think a rematch is required for that, right? That's mm -hmm. the. Uh, I think we need to rematch. Is what you? I think we need to relitigate it a little bit because uh, the thing that they said we had lost on was that we we didn't change. First, that we didn't change the outcome. And we were told explicitly at the beginning that our goal was not to change the outcome. So that was a little like, boo. Um, but the second thing was they said, all you did was convince like 30% of the losing party that the other candidate won. Uh, like, and, and therefore that's like not I need to go back and look at the record threshold. for that. By the way, it's really hard for us to do that. It's mm -hmm. weird because we actually removed all the material from online. It drew in, it drew attention from misinformation and disinformation groups that yes. were looking to cause trouble in 2021 and 2022. So we actually took it all offline because we'd done seven or eight of those by that point. Oh, I, I don't, I don't blame you at all. It got really crazy there. Uh, you know, maybe still is, uh, but, but basically I was like in the spring after I kind of like got over it. I was like, whatever. Yeah. It's red team blue team. I don't care. But then the spring after when like, let's just say maybe about 30% of the losing party thought that they, uh, had rightfully won. I was like, this is exactly what we did. This is exactly what the scenario said we accomplished. And you guys said it wasn't a big deal. This is a massive deal. <laughs> <laughs> like, so you get a, you get a, you get a, so uh, history vindicated us. Yeah. <laughs> on that one. Yeah. yeah. Um, have you, have you been involved in anything like that since, or is it something you've been pulled into at all? Not really. Um, I parted ways with the voting village, uh, around the time I joined cyber reason, uh, and, so I haven't done anything in that space. I would love to get involved in that sort of thing, but no, I have not been in, invited again. So that was a very fun, but now somewhat singular opportunity. And so, so now, you're, now you're miter ingenuity, right? Yes, and, and so so what, what pulled you in that direction? Um, there's a few answers to that. First, that they reach out to me, um, mm -hmm. that helped. Uh, but largely, um, so the election security world, as I kind of like mentioned glancingly, is a very integrity-based world. Like it really is, um, you don't want to be seen as a vendor. That's kind of a dirty word, even more so than in like broader cybersecurity. Uh, you know, you're, you're not, you don't want to be seen as sort of like out for yourself. It's a very like nonprofit, you know, sort of dominated place. So I have always been very careful with my integrity. Like I'm not saying I would never like sell a product, but it would have to be a product I believe in because that kind of like set the state, like they set the level for me about like what kind of person I wanted to be in the cybersecurity world. It was that like that honesty, that integrity, that not being seen as a snake oil salesman. So when, when Mida reached out to me, I definitely had a moment of like, 
oh, this is like a mission that's good. I mean, matter attack framework. These are people working on important problems. Um, you know, it's not sleazy. It's not a snake oily kind of thing. Uh, this is a, at the very least, this is a mission that I would be proud to be a part of. And it would be a nice thing to dip out of vendor space for a little bit and at least try this world out. Um, the, word, the word mission is critical there, I think. Yes. Right? Integrity is like, it's obviously it's a without which nothing, right? It's an equine on. It's yeah. like a, it's like a base, mm -hmm. but it's the, why do you do it? Isn't just financial motivation. In fact, it's about leadership and giving back. And I think that was probably the most, in, you said a lot of things, but that's one of the most important words that came out there. Right. Um, and I, and I think mission's been motivating you for a long time. Uh, personally, I mean, it, it certainly, yeah, I feel it behind the election stuff. I, I felt it when we worked together, oh. you gravitated towards the things that were mission oriented or that made a difference for the community. And, and I, I suspected that the sort of miter coming up with method, what I've always liked about the attack framework, for instance, is that it's, it's iterative, it's improving, it's getting better. Um, I hate to use the word academic, but it has a rigor to it. And if, and if that's not the right terminology, please correct me. Cause I'm not. No, I think as it's you, right? And then, yeah. and then there's the is it the engage framework that came after it? What are the techniques for for De dealing with each? Other? Maybe I've got the role. defend. Defend is the one you're thinking. Defend. Of. Yeah. I, I thought there was a there was another name. They just changed names recently or something. But it, it seems like they're always trying to improve the state of the art and the craft yeah. for practitioners, which is really meaningful. Yeah, I, I think that there's a, they have a uniquely uh, effective place, sort of as being this sort of nonprofit, this sort of you know, institution of a nonprofit um, in that like even a very well-intentioned vendor might need to change what they're working on because of market forces. They might like, we put this out for free, but we just can't anymore. We got to charge for it. Or like we were working on ransomware and therefore putting out all these tools for the community for that, but now we're not. So like we've pivoted and we're not maintaining those anymore. Those, those, those aren't anybody's fault. There's no moral judgment attached. It's just the realities of being in private, you know, a private business. And that ac academic, which you refer to as MITRE, I think is very uh, fitting because it is like there are things that need to be done for and by the wider community that no one company can be responsible for that shouldn't be paywalled uh, that are, you know, this common language, for example, with MITRE Tech Framework are, are, are really important and key and really effective. And, and I don't know if anybody else, any like individual, any like private company could really do it the same way. Right. I don't think there's any shame in charging cost right. or even cost plus a small markup because that's not necessarily profit, but that enables scale. Right. Right. It's uh, you can do it on a far bigger scale for more people and carry the service through to more people and then do more research. That's I think I think MITRE stands for MIT Research Establishment. Is that what it stands for? There is controversy around this question. MITRE, yeah, like there, there's there's one theory I heard that it was MITRE, which is like a research, yeah, uh, something uh, engineering, and then there's another version where they specifically wanted a word that meant nothing, but apparently hadn't had a dictionary on hand because it does actually mean something. It does mean. Um, I've, I've heard many theories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the archivist said that, yes, it was like they had a, a placeholder name uh, that was like MIT. And then like the other one was RE, like the other company, maybe like I think it's like a Rand forbearer or something that had uh, combined to make them. And they had planned to make a new name. And uh, a few months in, they were like, oh, we'd have to change all the paperwork and we just don't want to. And it was like in the 60s. So they kept the placeholder. Name. This is why, by the way, uh, you should never put a placeholder name if it's a name that could possibly be real. the real thing. Yeah. <laughs> it will always stay. Um Yes. So, uh, da, 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 I lost track of the thread. <laughs> no, that's Can good. we go back to, to academic for a second? Academic, yeah. Yeah, just the phrasing yeah. itself. Because I think one of the things MITRE attacked is really, really well 
is help create a framework that actually drives a practical security program. Yes. So one of the challenges that bothers me in the industry all the time is this ideology of what perfection is and trying to achieve perfection and security. And it's not a reality. And so to get a business to do something reasonable around security, to achieve a mission of protecting people, we have to have very practical ways to apply research in academia. Because if you take the principles of, say, like a volume of this big of the principles of encryption and try to turn that into a business practice, it just doesn't go well. Um, but with the MITRE attack framework, in my opinion, you can do this very practical analysis of here's the technologies I have, here's the ways I could be attacked, so here's the ways I can focus on defense and then align that to business priorities. However, um, do, do you feel that, do you feel it is a more practical than what a traditional academic when you hear the word academic, you think of it as a very lofty study, right? A very uh, high-browed study versus, to me, attack seems very practical. Uh, it's very grounded. Yeah. I, I, it's got an ampersand in there, right? It's so got there's an definitely marketing involved. Definitely it's, mar uh, <laughs> it's got marketing involved. Um, so yeah, <laughs> uh, I was going to say, I'm just reminded of that one XKCD comic where they talk about like computer science and academia, which is like, it's beautiful. It's perfect. It's these four lines of code that achieve so much. Nobody's ever done this before. And then like computer science in the real world and corporate world, it's like, great. Uh, can you get our emails to work already? Like, <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> so do you think MITRE hits that well? Do you, do you agree that it does? Because from my perspective, as an end user... I feel like I'm like contractually obligated to say yes, but uh, no, but I'm just, I'm joking. I've, I've never not been charged to say anything, but I would say I, I would, I, I, it's also an enormous organization, so I can't speak to every right. mission, but I would say that like, for example, the center for threat and form defense, which I do now. Um, one of the reasons it was spun up was because um, private companies were coming to work with MITRE on research projects and they would get these whole teams together and there'd be enormous overhead and like administrative things. And then it would all get, have to like kind of be wind, wound down afterwards and have to be dissolved. And uh, it was kind of a shame. It's a lot of wasted effort. So the idea, one of the one of the uh, reasons they created the center was to allow a, a vehicle in which you could continue to partner on different projects, and it wouldn't, and you could continue to be a member. And it's like, oh well, this year we're doing uh, Insider Threat, but next year we might be doing uh, iOS security of some kind. Like, do you want to stick around for that? Um, you know, it, it was sort of, so I think it is intended, especially MITRE Ingenuity, which was spun up specifically to work with private industry, unlike MITRE Mothership, which is like all government, single customer kind of stuff. Um, it's meant to be that nexus point of, you can get these rigorously academic researchers and engineers on your side to tackle wider industry problems that no one company is either empowered enough to do or has the skills to do or can make the business case to do. And, and you can and bring these teams together. It's really kind of a very cool idea and mission, I think. Oh, it is. It's been very effective, I think. Very effective. Mm -hmm. I mean, what else do we have besides CIS, Center for Net Security? I'd say that's it, right? It, from a community perspective. What other community? Oh, WASP, maybe. NIST, there's, maybe. A NIST, there's a lot of ISACs, right? You know. Um, yeah, but they're kind of... I, I worked for an ISAC, don't get me wrong. So this isn't a negative. You would be in the ISAC, right? There was the yeah, yeah, right. Multi-state yeah. ISAC? Multi-state ISAC. Actually, there's a lot of great like nonprofit, you know, organizations and, and initiatives out there. This is just a really interesting one as far as... Actually, what I meant to say earlier, Sam, because you brought up like um, people need to get paid is like the, the thing is this is really an organization that can only work with other organizations. And part of that is kind of speaking to that point, which is like there, money doesn't have to be like you know, uh, fiendishly profit driven, but it can also be like, well, people also need to pay their bills and they need to like, you know, yeah. fill these hours. And one of the nice things about the center's membership 
structure, not that sounds like a shameless plug, but it really is like you can actually bring in these researchers, um, you know, as part of their job, uh, as part of their day to day job. And I've seen a lot of really wonderful volunteer efforts out there, open source and things like that. But like, there's always the question of like, if it's unpaid as like as, as pure and, you know, and thoughtful as it might be it's always, it's going to always slide down the list of priority. Yeah. O open yeah. source often has trouble keeping up, yeah. right? Well, it's, log um, for J, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and open SSL when it had, when it had issues way back, oh, yeah. was very, very difficult for it to keep up. Um, no, no denigration meant, but when you have full-time employees and you can actually pay them, then you can put SLAs around it. Right. Yeah. Mm. So like the world's built on open source. Right. When it's at that, I, oh, I, I know I keep referencing yeah, XKCD, but like that one little tiny, like wooden brick at the bottom of the foundation. That's yeah. Like yeah. That's two guys in Nebraska. One holding it up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. Doing <clears throat> it for fun. <laughs> it, it's funny. I think, I think web service calls and APIs and, and embedded components are really the new supply chain. Right. M much more so than, than the vendor contracts even. And, um, and yes, people talk about, you know, S bombs and stuff, but, um, uh, really understanding what is passing through those gates and uh i mean identities and data and and the power to take action through them is a really big deal because it's not really a supply chain anymore it's more of a supply fabric right uh, so mm, right it's 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 not just a cascade like a line of dominoes it's the, there's a there's a web of influence that goes out it's like a worldwide web project. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a world that's, we should coin that. Should coin that's that. a thing we should do. No, yeah. no I, and, and, I, and I can only imagine the AI is going to make that even more impenetrable. And uh, I can't wait to find the cascading failure that happens because people are just drawing from libraries, you know, without is there Is there anything in history to pull from? I, um, I'm racking my brain as a non-historian yeah. who's terrible oh, at dear. history. Right. For, 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 but, which part, but, for which part of that? Yeah. For, for like a fabric like this. So a lot of things that we can in general, in business and society, you can look back at history and say, this has happened 400 times before. Um, I think transitions supply chain like collapse, it. probably, you know, would no, which, probably which be yeah. supply chain collapse of any kind, you know, would probably be the one of the closest, like, oh, you ecosystem. didn't. I think, I think you can find an ecosystem collapse. We're only yeah. now beginning to understand, for instance, that actually mycology is really important and fungus. Like I just, it, it was super trippy, but I just saw a special on fungus and apparently in, in a forest. No pun intended there, super true. Yeah, yeah, I know, like in you know, psilocybin and stuff. No, but, but the the point is that the like mushrooms and fungus are actually in in most forests and jungles actually connect trees. And they exchange oh, yeah, I heard yeah they that. exchange things like nutrients among trees and they help with an immune system across a whole ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And they actually help, believe it or not, with communication. It's like a network. It's like a web. And we never really understood that. So when you go plant a junk forest and you just plop trees in the ground, it doesn't kind of work. And so I may, there's probably some analogies to this in nature. Um, yeah. And, and when you kill off part of it or you, you, you have part of it that, that loses genetic diversity, for instance, and you get cascading failure. And, and certainly um, probably some of the, the, the great extinctions that have occurred, although we don't really, it's really hard to, like, ex to understand and ex examine them. Hey, we, we might be on the verge of watching one, right? Um, <laughs> Feels like it, in my office. Today, I'm sure to the list of one that we can find, but we are talking about failure. So maybe not. Mm -hmm. No, it's really, that's a really interesting perspective because there is no, for humans, there's never been a time where we've built something that's so interreliant on components that no one maintains, no one thinks about, right? Like the internet works every day 
based on the orders of magnitude more complex in terms of number of transactions, I think. And, right. And, and components. Complexity. Yeah. It's, there's nothing nothing like it that we've ever done. Maggie, did I see a skeptical look? Or are you thinking? Uh, I'm thinking. No, you can disagree yeah, with my, us. Uh, I, as Sam knows, and I feel like this is a worthy time to bring it up. My undergraduate thesis was on the collapse of the Bronze Age. I know. Uh, yeah, so. Oh, perfect. Which is, so we need to keep going. Yeah, which I'm a big history buff. Yeah. And, 11th century something, right? It was, uh, there's still argument over what year it was, I think, isn't there? Yes. 1177 versus 70. 1177 BCE by Eric Klein is probably the book I would recommend to people. I love that book. Yeah. Um, I was so disappointed because as I was reading it, I was like, oh, I've still got like 40% to go. And then I realized 30% of the book was just citations. And uh, <laughs> I, like, I reached the end and I'm like, oh my God, I had no idea how complex these civilizations were and how much was left in stone and cool. and, and in writings in stone and, and, and I guess petroglyphs. But um, like letters written in stone uh, among Egyptians and or clay and yeah. Egyptians and 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 what have you and and how much was probably left in other forms that we just don't have. But now I'm gonna let you talk. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, Can you define like the actual age too sure. for me for someone who can't retain dates for the life of them? Like where we are around the time in- that you would normally think Homer was doing his thing. Four hundred years before him. Actually, yeah. All right. So before him, yeah. yeah that's but, like but, saying uh, that's like saying nowadays is Shakespeare's day. That's how different. That's how far apart yeah, it is. So it's it's like eight hundred years before the twelve hundred years before the birth of Christ. Uh, so we're talking twelve hundred BCE. Um, okay. Yep, before yep. common era. If we're going to be academic about it. Um, so uh, what got me fascinated? In, so this is basically twelve hundred years BCE. So three thousand two hundred years ago, uh, there was a thriving civilization that covered the Mediterranean. Um, stretching from, you know, with trade routes that stretched all the way from the Baltic to Egypt. Um, and, you know, probably from the Straits of Gibraltar all the way to, you know, uh, the, the Levant, uh, which is the Israel, you know, so today. And beyond. And right? beyond. In, into Fertile Crescent yes. and stuff. So th- then, and this is an incredibly interconnected world. Uh, the, the kings in Greece are sending letters back and forth to the kings in Turkey. Uh, Egypt is talking to Crete. Um, Hittites and the Egyptians are fighting all the time. That's people in Turkey and the people in Egypt are fighting all the time. Uh, so the, the art is very sophisticated. This is the period where if it had happened historically, the Iliad and the Odyssey took place. Uh, and and much more trade than we thought. Like it was, yes. it was like, like a boat had parts from all these different regions rather than being built locally, which wow. we what people assumed. Yeah. And then, and that's why I mentioned the Baltic because like Amber from the Baltic has been found in like Greece. Um, and then within about a generation, the whole thing collapsed. And in Greece specifically, literacy was not recovered. Literacy was lost and was not recovered for 400 years. It was absolutely apocalyptic, like on the level of like the Roman Empire collapse. Uh, Egypt never fl- was Worst. the only country left standing, more or less, within, with any sort of continuity. Uh, they were um, never the same again. They never regained their power. This is like the, the, the Egypt of Ramses kind of like ended. Um, and they were always sort of limping along. The Hittites were gone. Their traditional enemy was gone, wiped out. Um, and it's just basically like the lights going out all over Europe. Like that's it was just, a dark age. Yeah. It was a dark age. It was a very deep dark age. It, um, and uh, like Greek uh, came back, uh, written Greek came back, but it was a totally different alphabet. They started over all over. And so it's like, it's a very like fascinating thing. So, you know, you hear about wow. this and you're like, wow, this like, this is like the end of the world. Um, yeah. And you go, what caused it? Right. Natural question. What caused it? No one knows. Genuinely. No one knows. There's and a lot of hypotheses from climate there's change. There's a lot of to, hypotheses. To uh, cascading failure in a globalized economy. Yes. 
Um, um, and then there's the sea peoples, right? And then there's the sea peoples who are the most only in sea. That was their thing. But there's a whole bunch of stupidity about, well, who were they? We don't even know, right? It's, it's a wonderful question. Refugees. Yeah, we're, yeah, there's a bazillion. And we could talk about this. I could talk about this quite literally for hours. I wrote a thesis on it. Um, but uh, this, the, the reason I was interested is because I'm also like an English, you know, re, you know, person as well, a writer. And I wanted to know, like, does this have anything to do with the Trojan War? And uh, my conclusion was, it's probably the generation right after. So if you want to be romantical and make like a story out of it, these guys went off to the Trojan War. While they're gone, or right after they come back, society collapses. Um, and either they come home to nothing, which is kind of attested to in some of the, you know, stories that come out at that time, or they're like Telemachus and the children of Odysseus and all those people, like those are the people who had to deal with it, which is also kind of attested to. There's a thing called the sons of Hercules. Anyway, no one knows. That's the thing. And, and you talk to a Greece expert and they'll say, oh, it's probably this other country where the sea peoples came from. You talk to a Turkey expert and they'll say it was probably Greece. And you talk to an Egypt expert and they'll say it was probably Turkey. And you talk to a Turkey expert and they'll say it was definitely not Turkey. And no one knows. And it was the wildest like mystery to track down where like every single expert says that everybody else's expertise field is where this thing originated and all the people of those fields would say, no, it wasn't us. Uh, so it's like a crazy thing to your point though. Uh, one of the things that might've contributed are uh, a collapse of the tin trade because uh, bronze is made with one 10, uh, nine, uh, 90% copper, 10% tin. There's no sources of tin in the Mediterranean that we know of. <laughs> and it may have dried up. Why did it dry up? We don't really know, but when that happened, it, society it came from like Afghanistan and like Britain and places. It could right? have come from Britain. It could have come from a mine in north northern Turkey, which was totally tapped, ancient world, or it could have come from like Assyria, which like all these trade routes are huge trade routes. We're talking, you know, this Bronze Age, still a long time ago. Uh, and one other theory, when the air climb puts forth, is there might have been a massive climate event, a massive drought, uh, and that might have disrupted people up, say, like in the steppe or something like that, you know, people further out, so far outside the Mediterranean that they don't know why this is happening. Um, and that might have created a cascade that might have disrupted, say, the tin trade, among other things. And that might have been like, so things start getting like a little bit tense in the Mediterranean. Maybe that's why you go and invade Troy, because suddenly you can't get bronze and your usual stuff anymore. But like, it's not desperate yet, but maybe you're just like hunger hurting a little bit more. And then within a generation, the whole thing falls apart. Uh, and no one's ever seen it. By the way, just for anyone who's yeah. listening, highly recommend 1177 yeah. BC, Eric Klein. I just wish his name was Derek Klein, because then it would be Decline. Oh, and that would be uh, the decline and fall, yeah. That would be joke. great. It would be so much cooler if that was true. Uh, but um, Yeah, so, so this incredibly roundabout way, to get back to Jacob's point that I was sort of looking skeptical about, which is like, has the world ever been so interwoven? Well, we've got trade today that would probably collapse if one key element went away, mm -hmm. or if there was a massive drought. I would say you interact with an incredibly complex system every day. It's called your local grocery store. Uh, that's mm -hmm. bringing in things from all over the world, uh, some of which, uh, if they broke down, I think you would keenly feel very quickly, as many people did with shortages during COVID. Uh, we, that would be a shuddering shock to the system, COVID, and, and, and imagine you know if those things truly break, what happens? Uh, I think you'll find out just how much you're dependent on things from thousands of miles away. And you'll probably feel it in your grocery store first. Um, one reason I think that we probably can't ever significantly like, seriously go to war with China is because all the chips are still manufactured in Asia. This is a problem that's been there since I first came into this field in 2010. The first security conference I ever went to had an entire huge section of the of those talks at Iokava 
uh, about what are we going to do about the fact we don't make chips here in the U.S. We cannot meet demand, period. Although although they are building new fabs and they're coming online in the West now. Yeah, but that'll be 25 yeah, years. Really that, but it's not here yet. It's, yeah. it's, um, At best, yeah. 25 argue, years. It's, it's not even just chips, though. It's our toys. When I say toys, I mean whatever plastic doodah, house decoration. Oh, yeah. We're yeah. Such a, it, in the I U.S., we're such a... Yeah, yeah. A consumer society now that as soon as you lose that, you feel like you lose part of you. You felt like you lost part of society because people's identities are how they decorate. They are the things they own, yeah. not who they are. I mean, people complain about fast fashion, for example, but it's like you don't even understand what it was like before fast fashion. Like, uh, mm. you know, when when uh, there's this really poignant picture from like World War Two, which is like a kid like clutching a pair of shoes to his chest. He looks like he's like six years old. And it's like heartrending, but it's not the war that meant he couldn't buy shoes. It was like just the shortage. It's like like that, but like not having shoes, buy shoes was like just a yeah. thing, you know, for poverty before things like fast fashion, before this global my, supply chain. My parents in post-war Britain, my dad was in London and he said uh, there was a ration for chocolate, yeah. right? And and certain kinds of food you, you could get meat, it, but it was spam. Like yeah. that's how it arrived for a while. And, um, and, you know, shortages were normal. And so it was a big, big deal to get an extra Hershey bar or something. Oh, yeah. I mean, just imagine, I mean, the richest of the world in the you know, 1500s, you know, they weren't eating any foods that were out of season. You couldn't have strawberries when it wasn't June, even if you were the king of England. It just wasn't done. You just couldn't do it. Um, uh, or meat, you know, I mean, like meat was incredibly rationed. Uh, most you know, historical dishes have like a little sprinkling of meat. Like meat is very expensive to, to make and, and we take it totally for granted. There's things that have changed in the last hundred years because of our supply chains that like, I don't think people even fully appreciate. Like I was looking up the uh, purchasing power versus in, in inflation are completely different things. A, a, a person who's like a servant in the early 1800s in England, like a pair of gloves just bought off a shelf would probably cost more than like their monthly salary. Um, just like what we would consider an almost like, oh crap, I left mine at home. I'm a, I'll just grab a pair off the shelf. Like that, that's for buying pair power. tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that, that raises the issue is as we digitize yeah. more and more things, we are yeah. exposing more and more of our supply chain, right? I mean, our literal supply chains. And we talked about supply chains in a digital sense, but our physical supply chains are becoming accessible to hackers. Right. And what, what was it? Uh, was it MERS? Mer Mer the MERS incident? Yeah, that was, I was actually where my brain was going, yeah, which is, uh, well, WannaCry, right? That was WannaCry. That was WannaCry. Yeah. Yes, it was, yeah. Um, and hugely, hugely painful. But um, take a look at Not Petcha. Not Petcha. No, no that's um, Not Petcha, Not WannaCry. Well, yeah, not, not pitch. It was not pitch. Actually, hit through ME Doc, which was a financial application for tax purposes in the Ukraine. Oh, right. Yeah, it, was, uh, yeah. it was actually destruction ware. Yeah. Um, built on. Petya base, I think. That's why it was called not pitch. I'd have to ask him meet we had him on recently, actually. Yeah. But that seems so long ago, but it really no, wasn't. It really wasn't. And, it, years. and it's part of this Ukraine war arc in all technicality and which has been know, going on for ten years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean in the war with Ukraine obviously has almost reached its tenth year, which is twenty fourteen, uh, is when that kicked off and the Donbass and all that. If you think of it changing form from you know, from the invasion of Crimea then to a coldish to a digital Right. <clears throat> yeah, that's different. Then, yeah. You could re uh, you could um, reboot um, Sherlock Holmes today, and you could still have John Watson fight in Afghanistan and in Crimea, <laughs> which is uh, the two places he fought in Sherlock Holmes. I want to say, yeah, that says something, doesn't it? Depressing. Yeah, something. Anyway, yeah. Um, well, hundreds of years don't change wars. If, the, if history is the one thing I do know about history, is that no matter what, 
hundreds of years don't change wars. So Meg, you kind of you kind of hinted at the fact that you're a writer. Yes, and I've always known that about yeah, you. Yeah, and, yeah. and I wonder, I, I, do you think, like in narrative form, do you think of stories in the back of your head? I know that you, I know that you are always thinking about lots of things at once. But is there, are you also thinking in terms of plots and themes and stories, or and do you feel a need to write it down, or is it, is it just sort of passing through? Um, I guess what I'm asking is, do you feel the pain of an author and the need to express, or is it, is it natural in your thinking process? Um, there's a few ways to answer that. One, I'd say, uh, basically, um, one, being a writer is giving yourself homework for the rest of your life. Uh, two, yeah. if you can at all quit, you should. Uh, but most people who are doing it, it's because they physically can't. Um, but at the same time, it did me a great service when I decided, like, I wanted to be a writer when I was young because it made me start noticing things and putting them together and uh, and... I would say it's less that I think in terms of like stories, like what is a story in that definition, but, um, and more like around like motives, like motives and the way people, um, justify to themselves. And like one of the things that one of my entry points into understanding like the threat actors in ransomware, right. Was seeing how they were similar to pirates. But part of that too, was I was really curious about how do they see I themselves? That. I love that yeah. perspective you had. You, yeah. you think you called them um, privateers. privateers. Yeah, privateers are probably more accurate. The reason I brought that up was because the nation, I think calling them criminals or pirates or even hackers is obfuscating how how closely tied to nation states. I, st- I still won't think of Contius or Francis Drake. I won't do it. No, as, no. As, a, as Francis Drake? Oh, Francis Drake is, yeah, yeah. That would be a, that would be a poor... But but the uh, okay I, I'm I'm straying towards that new topic, but I will just quickly say like so it's a, it's around motive. So a lot of these guys like um, Conti or Darkside rather they they said we're we're thieves, but we're honest thieves when they hacked Colonial Pipeline. We never meant to start an like an actual critical infrastructure incident. Um, and whether or not you believe them because they are criminals, uh, it was very interesting that they were telling themselves the same stories that privateers and pirates of the 1700s were also telling themselves, yeah. which is like, we're just honest pirates. Please don't come down on us like the wrath of God, oh nation state that we just accidentally tripped over while trying to steal your stuff. Um, and uh, and uh, the reason that they would make those claims to pirates was because they would come after them like the wrath of God and kill them if they could get their hands on them. And they did, yeah. And they did, and they did. Um, in many cases, I, which I don't recommend today. Um, but... <laughs> But there are like some Tom terrifying parallels. Barbary pirates, yeah. Yeah, especially when people start talking about letters of Mark. It's like, oh boy, I don't know if you actually want to open up that can of worms. It took roughly 250 years to put it away again once you let it out. Um, so I don't know if you want to do that. <laughs> yeah, so so do you still write? I mean, yeah. I, so I have a problem, which is whenever I relax, yeah. I wake up and go, oh, I should write that down. And I have a thought. And that's why I, I publish like an article a week. Cause it's Saturday morning. I go, I need to go write. Like I just, cause when I don't have to do something, I have to be writing. It just pushes me. Do, do you have, is it like that for you? Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, I'm what you call pre-pro, which is like, I write a lot and then I choke before submitting it. So I, uh, yeah. I just have to like, well, it. I used to do that. I used to do that. And then I gave it to you instead. Yes. I would write an article <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah. Hey Maggie, am I completely idiotic with this? And and then you would fix it. Sometimes me. you just yeah. need a, you just need a second pair of eyes uh, and a bit of encouragement. Uh, yeah, honestly. Um, yeah. I, I, it's more like I just can't stop talking, I think is the problem. So yes, all of this needs to go somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, but it's worth hearing, Maggie. Yeah. It's a good thing. What, yeah. what type of writing do you 
generally personally like yeah. forget work forget sure, sure, everything sure. security yeah. but if you're just writing for yourself do you submit to literary magazines do you write <sighs> these things poetry writing is such a broad topic and we, we start yeah. top mostly i write broad, fanfic yeah. um so i won't never tell you oh, where nice. that is or where you can find it um yeah. but uh, you have a pseudonym you don't have to tell us what it is do you have like a, i do have a pseudonym or? and uh i have uh like many kids online i have a second identity which you will never ever know about if i know you in any professional <laughs> capacity and i have two identities online um, I think I know one of them, but I'm not going to out you. Yeah, but, but I mean, yeah, you might, you might. But I mean, like, and it's, it makes it sound much more, like, dark than it is. It's Mysterious. really just like if I'm going to tweet about my favorite movie, I'm just not going to do it on the account I've, that I talk about, like, you know, ransomware on. It's just, I just don't want people seeing me fangirl about a Marvel movie in the same place where I'm being sort of nominally professional. So, yes, I have, like, an identity I've had since I was, like, a kid where I just talk about movies and stuff. And that's kind of the name I would keep. Um, that's know, pretty cool. Yeah. It's, it's, um, <laughs> I, I used to really try to keep my my personal nerdy hobbits separate from my my like my work persona and and there was a time when i think people would really have thought less of me but the more i bring it in the more um the more i think people appreciate it now so i actually went to a conference in chicago recently and rich rushing came up from motorola and he had a shirt on that said chaotic stupid i would have lawful stupid, stupid on rich. mine because I actually play Paladin a lot. <laughs> um, I'm chaotic so, neutral. Yeah. So I'm my dad, my dad played a Paladin recently, right? It, the, the guy who yeah. used to wonder when I was in high school if this was going to corrupt me and turn me to demonology, suddenly he's turned around at 75 and said, "Hey, it's what is that game you were playing?" Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I started playing Paladins as like a joke. I was like, I just, I was so annoyed by how often they were played as lawful stupid. I was like, this can be done better, guys. Like, it's possible to play one without them being just like the worst. Yeah, there, there's more than one mold for this. Yeah, and yeah. and then I looked back and I had played like three Paladins in a row and it was not a joke. It's like saying when you start saying dude ironically and then it becomes part of your vocabulary. I was like, I'll play a Paladin ironically and I'll play it right. And then now all I do is play Paladins. <laughs> So we've established fanfic yeah. as one of your yes. forms. Do you have other, do you have other forms? I know uh, Jacob just suggested. Was there poetry there? Was there is there nonfic? Is there? I did write novel? a play once. I did write a play once oh. uh, with a colleague, with a co-writer uh, who knew more about writing yeah. plays than me. So I, I teamed up with him to learn how to write plays, uh, and. It got shown once, and then, like, the theater where it was supposed to be put on, like, got flooding damage, and it just sort of fell by the wayside. I believe no, he's trying to... But it went all the way from writing we to had, production, we, which is a we huge had, like, feat, a, like, insane. Yeah, full, like, costumed reading, and, like, it was really fascinating to see, because there's things in prose, for example, that don't work on stage. So, like, you'll have your big... Uh, yeah. You remember when Spider-Man was first made into a movie, and, like, they were like, oh, we tried to make him quippy, but we couldn't, because, like, he's dancing his back web slinging all over the place. It's really hard to make these jokes. They work in comic form because you can just right. put a panel and uh, and have all the words, but he can't actually say, if he were actually moving, he wouldn't be able to make this joke. Um, right. Unless he just froze and everyone just let him freeze for a bit. Um, <laughs> and that was one thing. So like we had a big, um, big uh, monologue or something during the climax and everything just stopped dead while this monologue happened. And we realized like, this is so awkward. And we never realized how long the, like the speech was while they're supposed to be like kind of under attack and yet not like, but the enemy like not bursting through the door. So like we, we had to, we, we to and we never would have seen it if we hadn't staged it. Like, and it was fascinating to see like how the timing worked uh, once it was wow. read aloud and not at a tape. The table reading did not reveal this by the way, because the table reading, it was just still people sitting around. It seemed perfectly reasonable that we sort of duck out of reality time for a second to talk about, you know, uh, 
whatever the characters were talking about. Did you? And then we found a way to make write it work. that. Yeah. What we ended up doing was we like we shortened it a bit, and then uh, it's a it's a play about werewolves in the old west, and we decided. Uh, that the two people who are having the conversation are barring the door, like with their shoulder, like trying to keep it from like busting in the door. And that added tension to this, to the dialogue. It allowed, uh, um, and it allowed the person who was playing the werewolf actually time to like put the costume on. Like, uh, so we could just have any old stagehand just like banging on the door. And that gave this person like the freedom to go away and do, you know, do their costume change and the time to like let these people have this much more tense and much more like scary talk because there's like actually like somebody trying to bash down the door beside. But in the original, it was just kind of like them standing there with the, in front of a locked door. Like, so anyway, I philosophically disagree with you. <laughs> and it was just like, I was like, Ooh, it just, it was like just record scratched uh, or a uh, break squealing. Just everything stopped. You can say record scratch. No, it's not too deep. No, 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 no. I just meant like, I, I was trying to think of the right, but I really, uh, the real, what it really felt like was, I don't know if you've ever skied, but like if you ski, over snow and then suddenly hit like a mud patch and you just go you know, like you just completely f like stop and that's what it felt like mm -hmm. that when we hit that scene you lost all the momentum, all momentum yeah. stopped and it was a crazy so thing. i gotta ask how did you come to werewolves in the in the in the west like <laughs> can the, i call the, the podcast that? werewolves in the west, in the west. The episode that'd be great now? we I mean, that sounds like awesome we my my co-writer's previous story had been uh like a reimagining of dracula and we were looking we were trying to build something from scratch so we were like let's World just go through the movie here. monsters and yeah. let's uh, pick the most interesting one and then let's find a way to do it differently than everyone else has done it. Um, so we ended up after vampires, obviously werewolves is next. Um, yeah. so we went to werewolves and then we were like, well, they're always used as like a puberty metaphor. That's teen wolf, right? Like uh, yeah. you're getting hair in weird places and your voice is changing and, yeah. it, you know, and sexuality is scary. Like that's kind of what it always was. Um, and we're like, well, what can we do with this? And we decided to do, um, a disease, a plague and, like where lycanthropy had been, we, we imagined an alternate old West where the civil war was in this world was ground to a halt by a trench disease that some people thought was like deliberately an attack. Some people thought it might've been like a super soldier program. Nobody really knew if it was meant to be defense, defensive or offensive. And it just spread like wildfire and like these horrific draconian measures needed to be used to contain it. And we're out in this like sleepy, sleepy town out in Montana, basically that never got touched by any of this. Um, and, and, and well, there's a wolf sighting and they don't know whether or not it's like a werewolf or a normal wolf, but everyone's kind of freaking out. Um, and, uh, act one was modeled off of Gilgamesh. So act one was supposed to be nice. that they go, Gilgamesh yeah, this, this woman from the, like this wood fur trapper lady comes into town and that's Kit, that's Ankatu, Ankatu. And like, they were going to, she was going to team up with our protagonist, who's the sheriff. And they're going to go hunt this wolf and they're going to find it and they're going to kill it. Um, and so it's like a buddy cop. The act one. And then act two is, uh, all the same arc is Gilgamesh with eventually they're together or. Oh, well, Ankatu dies. Uh, but no, act two is like, that was just to kind of get us to act two. And act two is going to be, um, uh, the town descending of eating itself alive, basically as like, Ooh. it became much more the, uh, the crucible act. Like if act one was Gilgamesh, act two is the crucible because nobody knows. I want to see this. Yeah, this it was a fun fun. play, uh, but it, I, I would say it resonates more after COVID. It resonates a lot more after COVID because it's all about people like kind of not know where this disease comes from and like remote areas thinking they're safe and then like people turning on one another, you know, and uh, and so it's almost more topical now in very spooky ways. And so I know, I know you're always thinking a mile a minute. What do you, what do you do if anything to relax or to oh. calm down? Is there anything or do you, is that just overrated? I play the Sims. <laughs> I'm an original Sims kid. Uh, nice. Yeah. Um, 
that's probably the only thing I do where I can shut my brain off. <laughs> like, that's probably so. It. Yeah, my, the this the Sims. Uh, there's so many different variants on it, but like my, my daughter got into it. And I, I, I found my daughter and my son who are seven and ten playing The Sims on on my. I'm like, what are you doing? They're like, we're trying to keep this family alive. I was like, it's awesome. Yeah, it's it's not it's uh, I I, I try to tell people not to play Sims the same way I tell people not to take up smoking. Uh, like, save yourself. That, that's right. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, I I don't know. That's a that's a terrifying question. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do to relax? Yeah, it's it's one of those things that's really. I, I know that it can change too, right? Uh, sometimes, sometimes it's it's going to be um, it's going to be gaming, or it's going to be writing, or it's going to be playing a, like a video game or whatever. Mindlessly but, scrolling uh, social media. Uh, yeah, that, where that, we're going to do that though, I don't know. <laughs> because I'm like, yeah. I'm as a millennial, I'm on like 56th social media platform, I think roughly. Uh, with Twitter sort of imploding, and then like six copycats springing up over the weekend. Hopefully in a month, this will be old news and you won't even know what I'm talking about. Uh, exactly. So Jacob, anything else you wanted to dive into? Uh, I think there's so many things that we could talk about. And I, I think that one of them though, is we should talk more about role-playing and tabletop at some point, but I think we leave it for a second live oh. episode where we get together in person. And actually do, oh geez, wow. Uh, you know, it doesn't go as well. I heard, <laughs> this is gonna sound terrible, but, um, most of the most of the online role playing that you see people do is usually actually scripted, is what I've heard. So like um, the, a lot of the shows that have become very popular with this, um, but because most of when you get together with your friends and do this, it's very impromptu. And it, I don't know how good it is as a spectator sport, but I'm game. I, I think there'd be a lot of editing involved to make it seem more interesting for a spectator. Yeah. So something like a four or five hours for us turns into half an hour that's interesting for other people. Right. Uh um, yeah, I uh, I was a big. Yeah. I think you, we'd have to pick something small, and we'd have to do a multi, a multi camera, so you can do quick cuts between people and reactions to how things. So it, it'd be a lot more editing. It's something I'd probably put up on Fiverr and have an editor actually do the cut for us. Um, but I think it'd be fun to do like a we rent a couple cameras and do a multi camera. That's the other thing. Who else do we? Who else do we involve? There was in fact a Discord server made for Cyber Reason gamers that never amounted to what? anything. Um, yeah, yeah. Where will we find gamers in the cybersecurity oh, world? There's, hmm, actually, there's more so and tough. fewer than you'd think. More and less than you'd think. No, actually, <laughs> it's right around the one hour mark, and we're definitely going to have you back. So, yeah. uh, and and by the way, um, Jacob's a wizard with editing, so some of this he'll probably remove. Sure. We'll see. Uh, but uh, not my Maggie, thank, thank you for joining us. It's been great to have you on, and uh, we're definitely going to have you back. I think that I think if we got into some of the longer subjects, we'd be here for another hour easily. But uh, I really appreciate you you coming and spending time with Jacob and I. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm loving your podcast and really feel fortunate to have been invited on just to get the chance to talk to you guys. <laughs> <laughs>